Hello, Kindred. How are you? It is so good to see you. I, I love being here on Wednesdays with you, truly. Um, so I have spent about the last six years writing sermons. And some of those years I was writing on a week-to-week basis. And so I have come to know the feeling I had approaching this week's message very well, uh, which is writing sometimes feels like a fight. And not because the passage is particularly confusing or challenging or unclear. That definitely happens, but that frustration is different. Um, But it's because God usually has something really specific to say to me, and I just don't want to hear it. And so to let you in a bit on what happens leading up to this moment, where I have a microphone and some words on a page, this is what the fight usually looks like. I stare at a blank Word document for hours. I mean hours, just sitting there staring. Um, I considered reorganizing my spice drawer this week, and I bought all the things on Amazon I would need to do it. And then I doom scroll, updating myself on the latest news, you know, Kourtney Kardashian and Travis Barker now engaged. And then I start wondering, I'm like, is Scott Disick okay? That's where I have been this week. And so to be totally transparent, on some weeks, the message comes together really quickly and rather smoothly. And then on others, like this one, I have to fight through some stuff to be able to to preach it or to lead someone else through it with any integrity. And so the famous passage we're looking at tonight is about struggling with God, which is a concept I struggle with. The irony is not lost on me. It is actually quite glaring. See, I've never really been very comfortable admitting when I'm struggling. I think for a personality like mine that's really driven by achievement and performance, that can feel like weakness or failure in some way. And then that would be a threat to my value and my worth. And so I generally just avoid doing things that I know cause me to struggle. This is why I don't go to Top Golf and why I refuse to participate in water sports or just anything that really requires any hand-eye coordination. I'm tragic. Like, I just look like a fool, and so I don't do it. And then struggling publicly, like in front of strangers and people you don't know, is also particularly vulnerable. So I just usually opt out. But I don't really think I'm alone in this. Culturally, there's still a lot of shame around struggling, whether it's struggling financially or struggling with your parenting or struggling emotionally or even mentally. These are things we usually try to hide. We hide behind pleasantries. When someone asks how we're doing, we just say, fine, and we're good. We hide behind curated and filtered social media feeds. I think we even hide behind, you know, our busyness and our productivity. Struggling can be really ugly and messy, and it reveals these inadequacies. It reveals just how far from put together we really are, despite our every attempt to maintain that impression. I believe this is in part what explains the world's response to Simone Biles back in the summer during the Summer Olympics is that she refused to struggle privately. And so she was honest about her mental health. And then the world responded with this overwhelming support and respect and admiration. And I think that's because what we saw in her is what we hope for ourselves, is this permission to struggle, a permission to struggle. And so how about when it comes to struggling with God? I think there's definitely still a culture of shame around this too. There's maybe this sense that faith should come easy if we just have all the right information about God. And when belief isn't easy, well, then something must be wrong with us. We are the ones that are lacking. 
And so there's maybe to the sense of pity or almost fragility towards those who are struggling with God or worse. Christians have decided which ways of struggling are acceptable and which ones are not, which questions we'll tolerate and which ones we won't, which hangups are appropriate and around what issues. And if our struggle lands outside of those scripts, well, then there's no grace for it. But is that really how a relationship with God works? Does he actually expect our blind and infallible obedience? Do our doubts and our wrestling and our difficulty trusting him, does that really minimize or illegitimize our faith? Our passage tonight, I think, offers us a different perspective from what even our own experiences or our own wiring or what culture would have us believe. Tonight's scripture is about permission to struggle. So we have been following the life of this family for the last few months. What God began with Abraham and Sarah way back in Genesis 12 was passed down to their son, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca. And then last week, we learned that it would be carried out in the life of their son, Jacob. Now, Jacob is the younger brother to his twin, Esau, and their story is very sordid and dysfunctional and riddled with all kinds of deception and manipulation. Jacob winds up manipulating Esau in this moment of weakness to trade his birthright of the firstborn son for some lentil soup, which Zach has been very vocal. is not a meal, but I sort of disagree, uh, but I digress. That's a conversation for another day. And then Jacob pretended to be Esau in this really elaborate scheme that was cooked up by their mom, Rebecca, to in essence steal this blessing that Isaac, their dad, had intended to give to his firstborn son as he lay dying on his deathbed, right, blind and deteriorating. It was brutal stuff. So we left off last week at the part where Esau wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob is sent east to find a man named Laban where he will be taken in. And then this is where Jacob is supposed to find a wife. Well, the next chapter of Jacob's life will continue in the way of dysfunction and disorder. It just keeps going. So I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of time, but he fathers 12 children with multiple women which is problematic, right? For sure. And so when stuff like this, when we come up on stuff that kind of makes us raise an eyebrow and wonder what's going on there, but we don't have the bandwidth to give it the attention it deserves tonight, I want to just remind us of this, that much of Genesis is a narrative, meaning it's descriptive. It's describing what happened. It's not necessarily prescriptive. And then we see Jacob in this relationship with this guy Laban. It's tumultuous and it's unsteady and there's all of this back and forth and back and forth. And eventually God tells Jacob, it's time to head home. It is time to return to your family and to this land of your relatives. And so that's where we are going to now pick up in chapter 32. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. So Esau now starts making his way towards Jacob. And oh, by the way, he's bringing 400 men with him. Like this is not casual. You don't bring an army if you just want to chat, right? If you just want to talk. And so this sign of strength, it's definitely meant to intimidate Jacob because now there's this very real threat of violence. So Jacob gets the message and he splits his camp, so to speak, into two. This is so that if Esau does come after them, well, at least some of them, right, can escape 
and survive and make it out alive. And what I've come to appreciate so much about the way the, the writer of Genesis tells his story is that we get to see some of Jacob's complexity. Right? He isn't one-dimensional. So in this moment, we see Jacob afraid and panicked and almost just reacting to his circumstances. He makes this decision out of self-preservation. And then in the very next breath, we see him do something else. We see him turn towards God. The next verse, it reads, then Jacob prayed. So he's praying. He says, oh, God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, Lord, who you said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. He says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. So he's remorseful here. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan River, but now I have become two camps. And so save me. I pray from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. So everyone is going to be after me. But you have said, you said this, God, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And I think this is such a human prayer. Right? Jacob is so needy in this moment. He's desperate. He has wronged Esau, but he is asking God to protect him. And I think of how often I pray things like this. I'm like, I know that I have messed up. I chose something wrong, but God, please spare me the consequences, right? Save me from them. I don't want to have to experience them, even though I'm the one that messed up. It's just so honest. And then the next morning, we see Jacob back to kind of his old self. We see him calculating again and, and, you know, using all of this wit and intelligence to manipulate the people around him into doing what he wants them to do. And so he sends them these hundreds and hundreds of livestock ahead of him as this gift. So he means to kind of pacify Esau right, or, or trick him into not giving him what he deserves. So Jacob, like us, is many things. He is selfish at times, but then also remorseful at times. And he's afraid, but then he's also prayerful. And he's manipulative and also stuck in some old patterns. In one moment, he's choosing the right thing. And then in the very next moment, we see him choosing the wrong thing. And then this brings us to some of what I think are the most mysterious and strange verses in this whole book. So Jacob, he sends everyone else ahead of him across this river, his family, his, his livestock, his belongings. And then here's what happens. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and you have overcome. And so Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Now, this is a, definitely a bizarre scene. And so let's just talk about maybe what's going on here first, and then we'll talk about what it might mean for us. So this man approaches Jacob. And at first, we're really not sure who this man is, because all it says is, a man wrestled with him. 
And so was this man maybe an angel? Was this maybe a God disguised as a man? We're gonna see later that God appears to people in all kinds of ways. He shows up as a burning bush. He's gonna show up in some storms. So it's very plausible that God could disguise himself and show up as a man. We don't really know. And there's honestly not a ton of consensus in scholarship. And so that's not super helpful to us either. But we do find out a few verses later that this interaction, this encounter, it is divine. There is something supernatural going on here. So I'm going to take Jacob's word on this, is that he understands this struggle to have been with God himself. But then that creates some further confusion for us. Right, Because if he is wrestling with the God of the universe, well, how is it that God didn't overpower him? Right, That just seems kind of ridiculous and, and silly. So God could have easily crushed Jacob, but he doesn't. He's infinitely stronger than him, but instead he lets Jacob push back to the point of exhaustion, right, to this brink of almost giving up. And then he dislocates his hip and it ends the match. And it's like, well, if that's really all it took, right, to end this thing, like, why didn't you just do that hours earlier? And I think these curiosities are actually answered um, in the next few verses. So when the man tells him to let go, that he has been fighting and striving all night, Jacob refuses. And he says, I won't let go until you bless me. And see, I think that Jacob had to arrive at this place where he wanted something different. God had already decided that Jacob would be set apart, that he had something different. But Jacob's whole life, he has been calculating and measuring risk and running and hiding and lying and scheming. And so I think that Jacob had to be brought to this moment where he would want something else for himself, where he could then accept something new. And then it's in this moment that Jacob is given a new name. He's redefined. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And so Jacob's old name, there's a ton of meaning in it. It actually means deceiver. If you remember from last week, he came into the world grasping his brother's heel. And so this lying and cheating and deceiving, it has characterized every single relationship in Jacob's life up until this point. When God renames him, when he redefines him, Israel. And Israel literally translates struggles with God. And then from this moment on, we will see that these descendants of Jacob, they are referred to as the nation of Israel, that these are the people of God. He names them, struggles with God. And so the story, it's not just about one man's wrestling with God, but it's about God identifying his people by their willingness to wrestle with him. And we'll see this struggle is going to characterize the nation of Israel for generations as they continue to journey through the Old Testament. And so why didn't God crush Jacob that night when they wrestled? Well, because if he did, what would have that communicated then to us about God and how he feels about our doubts and about our own grappling with him? It would have meant that struggling with belief, struggling with faith, struggling to trust, that's unsafe. And that's not who God is. Instead, we see a God who names his people after this. 
giving us permission to struggle with him. This is to say he actually expects this from us. He expects us to struggle. And isn't that so freeing? At least it is for me. It's this comfort. It's this liberation for a personality like mine that wants to deny that I might struggle. See, struggling with God is what makes our relationship with him real. And let me ask you, what relationship in your life is free of conflict or struggle? Probably not any of the important ones, right? The people I fight the most with are the people I also love the most. And they're also the people that know the most about me. This is my husband and my family and some of my best friends. It's because I'm real with them. I'm honest with them. They get to see that really messy, ugly part of me and they don't leave. They don't bail. They don't change their mind about me. And so a relationship with God free from conflict, that's not really a relationship at all. That's something else. Maybe that's religion or some kind of contract, but it's not relationship. Relationship requires some conflict, some struggle, some interaction. And so wherever we got this idea that struggling with God is something to be ashamed of or that we should hide or is something that God himself would even punish us for or condemn, that if we just had better, stronger, more faith, then we wouldn't struggle. That idea is not from God. And based on this passage, it's not true. And so when I've heard this story taught before, that's usually where it ends. It would be over right there. But I think it's crucial to understand that this wrestling match is not the end of Jacob's journey, that it's actually situated in this larger story about him going to meet his brother Esau again. And so this whole wrestling with God thing, it was actually preparing Jacob for something. It was preparing him for reconciliation. Right? This encounter leaves Jacob changed. It marks him in this very profound way. Physically, he walks away from this struggle with a limp. But more than that, we see a change in his heart, a change in something deeper. I just want to read to you first what happens between Jacob and Esau. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. And so he lines up all of his children and Leah and Rachel and his servants. And then he himself went on ahead and he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So we see him take this posture of reverence, of this deep respect and of submission. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Then Esau looked up and he saw the women and the children. Who are these with you? He asked. Well, Jacob goes, they're the children God has graciously given your servant, given me. And so he introduces Esau to his family. And then we see his family also bow to Esau. Esau then asked, what's the meaning of all of these flocks and herds that I met? Like all this livestock you sent my way. Well, it's to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Esau goes, I already have plenty, my brother, and so keep what you have for yourself. No, please, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorable. So please accept the present that was brought to you for God has been gracious to me and I have all that I need. 
And it's because Jacob insisted that then Esau accepted it. This is such a tender scene, right, between these two. And for the first time since chapter 27 that we started in last week, we see Jacob actually bow to his brother that he was destined to rule over. For the first time, we see Jacob humble himself. He seeks forgiveness from Esau, wanting not to be the guy that betrayed him all of those years ago, but wanting to be seen as favorable, right? As in good standing, in his good graces. And then finally, we see Jacob content, content in who he is and all that he has, right? We don't see him striving and grasping for more, trying to keep things for himself. But now we see him actually sharing what he has, this wealth, this gift with his brother Esau. And so his struggle with God, it led to humility and forgiveness and generosity. And this is significant. Jacob didn't leave this encounter with God beating his chest and looking for a fight and ready to to warrior up because I wrestled with God and made it. There's no arrogance in Jacob here because experiencing God's grace, it led him to reconcile with the people that he'd hurt and that he'd wronged. Because that is the heart of God. He had just met with God and now we see him reconciling. It's who God is, it's his heartbeat, it's what he does. It's what Jesus ultimately accomplished for us in his death and in his resurrection. His sacrifice, it's what brought us back together. It's what connected us back to God. These things that sin had separated and fractured and broken, Jesus actually makes a way for them to come back together. And so struggling with God, this is where we meet his grace. It's where we encounter his kindness and his tenderness towards us in the ways that we're frail and weak, the ways that he is gentle with us, despite his power and his strength, the fact that he could crush us and he doesn't. It's this grace that it transforms this pride we used to see in Jacob to humility and this bitterness in this relationship to forgiveness and this selfishness right, to generosity. And so this wrestling, I think this is the most realistic picture of what a life with Jesus looks like. It's this back and forth and this tug of war, sometimes even moment to moment between relying on myself and all of my own intellect and my own resources and my own capacity and my own strength and relying on God and trusting him. So life with Jesus, it's not at all about trying harder to be better. Instead, it's about holding on tighter to who actually is better. It's just about holding on to Jesus. He says, just hold on to me. You have questions, you have doubts, you have hesitations. Just keep holding on to me. You're disillusioned, disenfranchised. Just keep holding on to me. Struggling to believe that I am good. Struggling to believe who I am and the things that I've done. That's okay. Throw everything you have at me. Throw me your best arguments, exhaust your justifications and your objections. Just hold on like Jacob held on until he shows you what is true, what is true about who you really are. And the best news, the good news in all of this is that he is holding on to you too. 
is that you have permission to struggle knowing that he won't let go of you either. So we're going to end tonight by taking communion together. Communion is really just an act of remembrance, of remembering who Jesus is and what he has done and what that means for our life. It means that Jesus' body really was broken and his blood was spilled out for us on our behalf. It's a chance to remember that the God who raised him back to life three days later, that God is still taking broken things and making them whole again and bringing them back together. That same God is still reconciling damaged and hurt and fractured relationships. That God is still redefining old and dead things as good and as new. That is what we remember and celebrate with communion. And so I'm going to pray here in a minute. And then as soon as the band starts, you'll be able to get up, get your juice and your bread. Um, if you don't, uh, aren't comfortable sharing a plate, there is communion in the back in little separate baggies. If you also have dietary restrictions, definitely use the table in the back. Um, but I want to just invite you, if there is something that you feel like you need to struggle with, with God, something you're having a hard time believing or accepting or embracing, you have permission to struggle with him. I believe he will meet you exactly in that place, the way he met Jacob, with kindness and gentleness and care. And he won't let go of you. So it's okay. You can struggle. Let's pray, kindred. God, God, I'm so thankful for who you are. God, that you are kind and that you are generous and that you are good and ultimately God that you love us God I pray for those like me who don't like to admit struggling God that it feels too close to failure or we feel ashamed in some way God I pray that you would replace that lie with the truth God that you invite us to wrestle with you. God, that you pursue us. God, that you give us permission to bring you our hesitations and our doubts and our reasons and our justifications. God, we can bring it all to you and you will meet us there. You give us permission to struggle. God, I just pray we would be encouraged by that. And then God, for those who need just a moment with you to struggle with you through something, I just pray that you meet us you'd continue to be kind and tender and gentle towards us. Ultimately, God, I'm thankful for your son, Jesus, that his sacrifice means you'll never let go. God, that nothing can separate us from your love. Jesus, we love you and we need you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.